All right, today I'm going to be doing an interview with author David LeBlanc. Uh, saw his interview, uh, Following Jesus Out of Christianity, um, because I posted mine. So uh, reached out to him and saw if he wanted to do an interview. And um, so, and I just, I'm changing the name of my blog to let's, uh, pull, uh, was it the, the Pulling Threads podcast, the idea of pulling the thread and kind of unveiling the tapestry and, and going into more information. Um, today, we look to unravel and deconstruct some popular notions. Um, I kind of feel like King David, when, you're when he was transporting the ark and the man reached out to touch the ark and died, you know, we're going to be touching holy cows and holy cows like to go moo. Um, but I want to kind of do a deep dive into the various Christian movements, the wealth of useful knowledge that I've gathered along the way. Um, somebody asked me recently, what purpose do, does a Jew have studying Jesus? And to be honest, it's not central to the Jewish faith. So I'm not doing it for that reason. I'm doing it because I spent 30, 40 years of my life and I have so much knowledge in my head. I need to do something with it. Uh, so if I can provide resources to people in their journey, following Jesus out of Christianity, right. whatever the journey is. and I understood what you meant. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like Goldilocks and the three bears. I tried three beds, Jehovah's Witnesses, Christianity and Messianic Judaism. At the end of the day, none of them fit me. Uh, so like I said, I saw your interview from our childhood face. It's kind of start at the beginning here. Um, how... You know, tell me your story, how it began, um, your childhood faith, I guess, you know, through born-againism, uh, that's a word, uh, probably made it up, uh, the, you know, into Bible college ministry, Messianic Judaism, then converting to conservative Judaism. I mean, and there's a lot of intersectionality, and I'll kind of go through each one of those here. Uh, what was your spiritual upbringing like? Was there development, I, developmental ideas as a child? that led to your spiritual journeys as an adult? Were there things that clicked with you as a kid? For me, I'd read the Torah twice uh, by the time I was 12. And so that was my litmus test for everything else, including the New Testament. And so I always, the rub was, yeah, this doesn't match kind of thing for me. So that was something in my childhood that began a constant journey of questioning. And the one thing I like about Judaism is, the question and the debate is more important than fixed answers. So, and that's always been my kind of journey. So uh, was there something in your childhood that was a catalyst for the journey that set you up and kind of, I guess, start out with your childhood experiences? Yeah, I'll start off. I just wanted to make sure um, if anybody wants to, if watches this video and wants to really dive into a, a, a deeper dive into my full experience, I did write a book called uh well you really can't see it here in the camera i'll just say it's it's there's so there's no such thing as magic blood uh and it was basically the full soup to nuts from my childhood all the way until my conversion to judaism um uh I, to answer your question i think when i was a kid I, and i detailed this in my book there was a moment i remember when i was a teenager uh even a preteen really and my father had been raised pretty devout Catholic. Uh, my mother was kind of indifferent. She just kind of did whatever my dad wanted to do. Uh, 
I guess she was raised in a non-observant Catholic family. You know, they went to church on Easter and Christmas. My father was an altar boy, and he had actually considered the priesthood at one point, and he didn't follow that path. But what, as he was raising myself and my sister, it was very important to him for a period of time that we were in church. And I, I just remember thinking to myself, and I, as I, as I mentioned already, I, I detailed this in my book for, through recollection, but we went to this church called uh, St. Mark's. And I remember sitting, of course, you know, in the Catholic church, you sit and then you kneel and then you sit and you kneel again, then you stand and you kneel again, and then you sit. It's, it's this kind of ritual thing. And I got really bored with the liturgy because I didn't understand it. And I, I was looking around and they had all these, these stained glass windows. And the stained glass windows were like a procession of the passion, right? It was like the stations of the cross, as you were, as it were. And I remember at that time, of course, most Catholic churches now have modernized and they don't have this anymore. But back then it was very common for Catholic churches to have an effigy of the of the bloodied, mostly naked Jesus nailed to a cross in the back of the church. Uh Nowadays, you'd be hard-pressed to find a Catholic church that would do that. But for most of history, that was what they had behind the altar. And But yet I noticed the contrast between the stained glass windows of Jesus uh, going through his stations, dressed in a perfectly white, unsoiled robe with a nice pink complexion, almost a reddish beard, kind of a genteel look to his skin, just looking so sensitive and and completely apart from the surrounding environment and then i saw this bloodied you know stabbed mostly naked guy hanging on a cross like uh, in the back of the church and I, and I remember at that point i was like what is going on here i remember thinking as like a 12 13 year old kid like what is going on here like like what are we actually doing like who is this guy and what does he have to do with me that was kind of the thought i had that was like a passing phase. Like I, I remember having that questioning period. And then of course, as I went forward in my high school years, I was more concerned about girls and music. And my father finally gave up trying to bring me to church. He said, you do whatever you want. And I stopped going. There's more to that story than uh, maybe I'll share that. So, so I'll, let me share this part. So there was a incident when I was a, uh, a senior in high school where my father was, you know, I had gone through my first communion, I went through all that. And then uh, I had this friend named John Gary, who lived across the street from the church from the parish. Uh, and it was a little village, you know, and so it was about a 10 minute ride from our house. And, uh, and I remember I went to a house party once, it was like this gathering of maybe 20 or 25 of my schoolmates. And, uh, and it was kind of a weird house. It was like this house that was always unfinished. Like there was always a room they were doing construction in. So every single time you walked in, there was always like sheetrock and open, open walls and like dust everywhere. And it was one of those type of places. It wasn't a neat place. And I remember I went in and I had to climb over some tools or something. And I, and I walked in and, and there was no place for me to sit because I was a latecomer. And there was this guy that was sitting in the back of the room and he was on a recliner kind of in the dark. It was kind of like a poorly lit area. And they were watching this movie back back in the 80s. You might remember this, Jeremiah. There was this, this series of movies came out called Faces of Death. It was like all these gruesome, uh, uh, I don't know, documentaries of gruesome ways people die. It was pretty gross. And I didn't really want to watch it. So I, I kind of went back to the back of the room and I sat down 
and it was, and this guy was sitting there and he had a Jack Daniels bottle that was half empty next to him. And he's, he said hi to me and he was like slurring his words. And I started talking to him and I, I realized, you know, as my eyes adjusted to the light that he, he was a priest. And then I realized that it was actually the priest of my parish. <laughs> he was just hanging out at this house party, drinking whiskey, getting himself completely sloshed. I don't know why he was there or what the point was behind that. But what happened was, is I went home and I told my dad, you know, I couldn't wait to tell him that the priest was at this house party and he was completely sloshed. And um, my dad was, you know, needless to say, not happy to hear this. And that was the last time we ever stepped foot in that parish. And that was the end of my church going until after college. So, you know, from that point forward, uh, I really was focused on, uh, you know, I, I had been, I'll mention this because you shared, you know, some private details with me about your own journey that I guess you've shared publicly. Uh, and I shared it in my book that I, I was sexually abused by a scoutmaster when I was about that age, or just before that age. So I, I was pretty mentally kind of uh, in an imbalanced place. Um, so this religion experience that I just described had a particularly important impact on me because I was already struggling with self-identity and what had happened to me. I didn't feel like there was anybody I could talk to about it. I felt, you know, I felt like dirty, like I was a lesser person. Um, and I was really struggling with that. I was struggling with my, my, my concept of my own sexuality and, and who I was as a person. And so going forward, you know, I ended up graduating early because I had been moved forward uh, as a young kid, I, I was considered to be uh, gifted. So they moved me up like a grade or two when I was young. I don't think they do that practice anymore, but they did that back then. And so I went to college. I was like 16 going on 17. I was a freshman in college. So I was a lot younger than a lot of the people I was in college with. And I wasn't as emotionally mature. Plus, I had this problem that I had gone through this experience. So um, I got to college. I was a very poor student. I did not handle the freedom of the college environment well. I wasn't well prepared for it. I, I didn't have my ducks in a row, as it were. And I got involved with anything I could get my hands on. So basically, I was experimenting at that point. I didn't know what I believed, but it was really important to me to know what I believed, if you know what I mean. Like, I wasn't just content to just live life without a care. I was somebody that was very spiritually intense and I really wanted to know what was true, but I had no compass at that point. I had no idea how to find it. And so I was trying to figure it out. I had already at that point pretty much decided that the Catholic thing was not for me, not, not because of any deep at that point, not, not any deep, you know, scholarly dive into the sources or anything. It just, it just the impression I had, the feeling I had from my youth was I wanted something different than that. It, it didn't attract me. And so um, I, I was just lost, you know, to, to use a Christian phrase. And um, I started hanging out. I, I, I ended up joining a band. I was a singer and the band leader was a Grateful Dead fan. And so I started hanging around with this Grateful Dead crowd. And before you know it, I was like saving up money to buy tickets to go follow the Grateful Dead up and down the East Coast. And this is back in 1985. Um, and so I was skipping classes, going to Portland, Maine. I was going to, you know, I was going to Providence. I was going to all these different places. And um, 
and there was one particular time where I had uh, I had purchased a bunch of Berkeley acid and I was saving it. I had done acid a bunch of times while I was at college and I wasn't doing it recreationally. I was experimenting with drugs so that I could figure out if there was something beyond the five sense reality. That, that was, I remember that specifically. It, there was no intention of me partying just to have fun. I was like, I was intentionally trying to influence my brain to be able to open up channels of understanding. Uh, and so I was doing mescaline. I was doing combinations of opium and, and marijuana. And, and then, of course, I was doing LSD. And then there was Easter weekend and the Grateful Dead were playing in Providence, Rhode Island for three nights. And it just happened to coincide with Easter weekend. And that was always, even though, as I mentioned, for a number of years, my family had become kind of like non-practicing Catholics. We still, it was really important to my family that we were in church and together on Easter and of course on Christmas. And so Easter weekend, so I decided to not come home for Easter from college because I wanted to go attend these concerts in Providence. And it was a major big deal to my mother because, oh my gosh, my son's not coming home. This is like, you know, the big ham dinner, the whole thing. And, uh, but I really wanted to see these shows. And what happened was, was I ended up taking everything I had of my LSD. I took like 450 milligrams of really potent LSD. And then my ride to the concert didn't show up. And so this was, I think I was on a, I think it was the Monday night. That's what I put in my book. I, I had to, I had to go back and research the timeline and the dates and the concerts, you know, and figure out exactly which concert this was, but I believe it was a Monday night. It was after Easter. So, um, I ended up tripping on LSD and I, I just like, like reality was like going bonkers on me and I was alone. Like it, it was, because it was Easter weekend, there was hardly anybody in the dorm. I was very few people in the dorm and I was left alone and I started having a bad trip, what they call a bad trip. And in the midst of this bad trip, I was freaking out mentally because I, I, I mean, I couldn't even find the door to my room. I was in my room, but I couldn't, my mind was so tortured and confused that I couldn't, I couldn't function. I was just walking in circles. I tried to go to bed, couldn't fall asleep, of course. And at one point I just cried out. I'm like, God, I don't know if you're real. But if you are, I can't survive this. Please make it stop. And I remember having this experience of it all stopped. Like the, all the confusion just like ended. And I had the, I felt like I had just stepped out of a pool. Like I was wet, but I wasn't sweating. I, just, I wasn't wet. I just felt wet. And I don't know what possessed me to do it, but I got up off my bed and I grabbed some change out of my desk because back then we didn't have any cell phones. We just had pay phones. And I walked down the hallway to where the elevators were. And I dropped some coins in the phone. It was like 1.30 in the morning, I think. Called my dad. My dad answers the phone because he's on his landline by his bed, right? And I told him, I said, I need to come home. And he's like, why? Are you in jail? What's wrong? He's like, nope. I just need to come home right now. And so... To make a long story short, he ended up coming up, picking me up. I detail all this in my book. And he drove me home. And while he was driving me home, he starts lecturing me. I remember, you know, here I am. I'm on this massive acid trip. 
And my dad is like tearing into me on the way home, just lecturing me, giving me the business about, you know, I'm not paying for this anymore, blah, 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 blah. And I remember I got home to my childhood bed. And back when I made my first communion, he had bought me a copy of the New Living Bible. And I had tried to read it a few times, but never really got very far. And then that night, it was like 2.30 in the morning. I just opened up the book of Matthew. And of course, understand, I'm tripping on LSD. Um, and I started reading the book of Matthew. And it was like the words were like jumping off the page at me. I was like, I was like, yes, yes. Like my, my whole heart was like beating through my chest. Like, this is truth. This is truth. This is truth. This is my destiny. I, was, I remember thinking that. And um, I was hallucinating. It was all these crazy things. And I'm reading this chapter. I read the whole book of Matthew. I read it all the way until dawn. I didn't go to sleep. I just read the Bible. And then I remember getting up in the morning. And it was like, I don't know, maybe 6.30, 7 o'clock. My mother gets up. She's in her bathrobe. She's downstairs. She's looking all drawn and tired. And she's got a coffee in her hand. And she's looking at me like, like I'm so sorry. You know, what's going on? And, I'm, and I, I had this smile from like ear to ear. Like, it's going to be okay. I'm fine. So then to fast forward, my father was in back then. I don't know if you know anything about this. But my father was in this business called the Amway business back in the mid-80s. Multi-level so he marketing. was this, yeah, he was this multi-level distributor for Amway, and he was doing pretty well. And I didn't very know much about it. Evangelistic. Those those meetings were always very evangelistic. It felt like yes. Oh yes, that's a whole yes. I have a whole chapter about that in my book. So the that's right. So I don't know what to do with myself. I I was raised Catholic. I'm just like I'm feeling like I'm having this spiritual awakening of some sort out of this drug experience. And I don't know what to do with myself. And my father's like, well, you know, I'm doing this business. If you want to come to one of the meetings, you can come to them. So I went to a meeting with him, ironically, at a Jewish home, <laughs> not observant Jewish home. And um, I meet this guy named John. And we're having coffee after the meeting in a Jewish home, you know, mind you. And I start talking with him and, and I'm telling him my story about what happened to me, you know, and and he starts to smile. And he was this big, tall guy. And he's like, well, you were born again. I'm like, what are you talking about? I mean, you're talking about that guy, Nicodemus, in the, in the Gospel of John? And he goes, yeah. He says, you were born again. He says, you're, you're saved. I'm like, how do you figure that? I said, I've never heard about that, about that before. And he says, well, yeah. He says, once you ask Jesus into your life, you're saved. And so I looked at him kind of funny. I'm like, I didn't ask Jesus into my life. I said, I just prayed to God. And he says to me, and he just, he like, he's stunned for a second. And then all of a sudden he smiles, like with this confident smile. And he says, well, you don't understand, Dave. He says, Jesus is God. And I was like, that doesn't make any sense. I'm like, so who was running the universe when he was dead on the cross? Like, what happened? Like, that doesn't make any sense at all. Like, 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 why would, why would God have to become a person? Like, like, that sounds kind of condescending. That's kind of ridiculous. And he yeah. just looked at me like this. He's like, it's all right, Dave. He says, you'll understand it once you study. He says, do you want to do a Bible study? I'm like, really? You would do that? I mean, he says, oh, yeah. He says, we actually have a thing in my church right now where we're doing this Timothy project where we have to go two by two. And we're supposed to memorize scripture together and study the word and pray. I'm like, yeah, sure. I said, I don't know anything. I said, I'd love to do that. So I started meeting with him. You know, he was like an hour away. And... um, we started doing all that and uh 
it's funny i still remember the verses that we memorized but the um but i never really quite got that question answered and it was like so so then i then i started going to this church so now this is not a catholic church this is now a baptist church so it's like a southern baptist type thing and i remember the pastor had like curly hair and he had a goatee younger guy well i say younger guy he's younger than i am now but he was older than me then but uh very skinny and i really enjoyed his exposition like i the music was okay like i didn't really care i was into the grateful dead i didn't really care about church music but i i was into the preaching like like I like the way that he did like point A, point B, point C, point D. And he kind of like, I never got that in the Catholic church. In the Catholic church, you got a 10 minute homily and then, then you had all the ritual. But in this church, he was like, he was like going into it. Like he was giving you like a psychological lesson and he was connecting it to the word and giving you encouragement. And then the thing that always got me was that at the end, there was always an altar call. I never experienced that before. Right. There was always this altar call. And to me, it was always like I always felt like it was one of those things like if you were out with a with a battalion and the commander came out and said, we have a really tough mission ahead of us. Some won't make it. I want to know who's with me. I would be I would want to be the one to be like, pick me, pick me. I'll go. So that, that was the way I reacted to altar calls. Like I didn't look at altar calls like a salvation thing. I looked at it like look at it like like it was an opportunity for me to pledge my allegiance like like I'm gonna be here you can count on me Buster kind of thing like I'm gonna go up and so I would make up excuses to go forward and I would try to figure out like what am I gonna pray about because I'm already saved like well surely there's something I've got to pray about because after all I'm a dirty rotten sinner I mean I, I have to confess something because that was my Catholic upbringing so I would just go up like every single time there was an altar call I would go up. And everybody was like, oh, isn't it so precious? You know, he's so sincere. He's so passionate. I just didn't want to be left out. I just didn't want somebody to forget about me. You know, that was all it was. I didn't know. And and so there was like this experience. And, and then going forward, like I left, I left college, obviously, and I went through a series of different jobs. And at one point, I ended up working as, as a dietary clerk at a nursing home. And I really liked that job because I got to talk to the elderly and I really got to, you know, I got a, a lot of perspective on that job because as a young person, at that point, I was like 20 years old. And I'm, I'm talking to these 85, 90 year old people who are at the last part of their life. And like most of the people they loved in their life were either dead or they didn't have immediate contact with them. Again, there's no smartphones back then. It's like they're just stuck in these rooms. They're watching TV. They're living out the string, so to speak. And there was always a lot of sadness. Like you could always tell that like there's nothing they could do about what had happened. It was like this feeling like the script had been written and there's nothing you could do to change it. Like this was their life. It's what it was. It was almost over. And it, and I had all these people telling me, well, you got to share the gospel with all these people. You got to share the gospel with the lost, right? But I felt it was insulting as a 20 year old kid to try to preach Jesus to a 92 year old grandmother. Like she had already heard about Christianity. If she had lived in America for any length of time, she didn't need me of all people. Like and my thought was at the time is like, is your soul so cheap that God expects a 20 year old kid to bring this person to get to know him? Like is, is God, I remember thinking like irreverently is God that weak 
that he needs me to reach people like what like what is going on with that and so i had these questions and so anyways i would have these spiritual conversations with you know the cafeteria whatever and there were these two nurses in particular who were part of assemblies of god and they just took a real liking to me because i would have these open conversations all the time and i was young and i was smiling all the time and so they invited me to this easter play that that, that their church was doing and I was like, sure, we'll go. And so I went with them. I rode in the back seat. We got there late. So, you know, as you know, you you have a background of somebody's of God. So they were put on these massive productions. And their goal would be, they wouldn't charge admission for it. Their goal would be to bring as many people from the public that would possibly want to go. And hopefully some of them would get saved. That would be the whole idea. That was the point behind it. And I don't know this. I mean, I was raised Catholic, right? I'm just getting exposed to this stuff. So I go them. I go there with them. And we ended up, it was a big church. And we got because we got there late, we had to sit in the balcony, like above the main floor. And we got there like in the middle of the first act. And I remember watching it and people were hooting and hollering at various times. And and then at one point we got to the we got to the section where Jesus rises from the dead, right? And so they had this, they had this dry ice machine with all this like fake smoke coming out and the lights shining. And so there's this big boom. And this, you know, the fake stone rolls away and this actor comes out and he, he looks like, you know, Robert Plant from Led Zeppelin coming out. And, he, and he's got he's got the, you know, the lights behind him and the dry ice machine. And, and he's standing there with his palms outstretched and you can see the blood on his hands. And and all of a sudden I'm looking around and like people were losing their crap. Like people were like, Jesus, Jesus. And they're like, they got their hands in the air. People, some people are falling down in the aisles and they're like, they're like riffing around and like somebody shot them with a gun. And I'm just like, I'm just like, what? Like, what is going on? And, and the people next to me that brought me, they're just like, oh, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. And I was like, what the hell is this? Like, what is going on? I was not impressed at all. I was just like, holy crap. Like, if you've got to put on this kind of a production to convince somebody that your message is real, there's something wrong here. Yeah. And it was like this major doubt that? that I had in my mind. About what you year was that? What, about that? what year was that? Huh? About what year was that? Oh, that was... Um, uh, it was either... No, it would have been 1987. 1987 yeah uh, i was just kind of curious if that was when there was like that big revival heyday that kind of went through the pentecostal movement where there's a heavy influence on or a focus on started with like the vineyard church went through like assemblies of god and stuff like that yeah the vineyard was a was an offshoot of calvary chapel actually yeah right yeah, yeah you know you would know that being out in california um yeah, it's interesting you say that because uh, I remember hearing stories from people like there was this big Toronto revival at one point. Yeah. People were going up there and they were they were like getting slain in the spirit and everybody was saying and there was a lot of controversy about it. I know I never was involved in any of that stuff. But yeah. um, but anyways, I guess the point was, is that I didn't feel connected to that expression. Like to me, it seemed really kind of vaudeville like. Like, what are we doing here? Like, I wanted more of an intellectual approach. And of course, in Amway, you know, to bring it back to that, I was in Amway with my dad. And the Amway group 
that we were part of was led by people that followed guys like Kenneth Copeland and Kenneth Hagen and all these, you know, name it and claim it preachers. Mm. And so I was getting a steady diet of this kind of crap while I was in Amway. And so that was another reason why I wasn't really too impressed. But it's interesting because I ended up going full circle with that. I almost became an Assemblies of God pastor much later. Uh, but anyway, so I had some questions back then, even. When I look back on it, when I reflected in my memoir, I had to be honest that like I, I never was really ever at a point where I was always like really buying everything. But I hesitate to sell it, sell it to people because the number one objection that people always have when you tell them that you're no longer a Christian, Christian is that they say, well, well, you, you were never born again. You must never have really known Jesus if you could walk away. And like, like they have this unquantifiable emotional experience with this thing they call Jesus, which I call a concept. I don't consider Jesus to be a person. I consider him to be a concept. Because every single denominational expression has a different picture of what they consider to be Jesus, which proves that Jesus is malleable to the, uh, the 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 interpretation of of the beholder that that's always the clear sign of somebody who's not real somebody who's real you can dis, you can diffuse falsehood by saying well this is what he really is because we have this documented evidence this is what he actually was yeah. not what you're claiming to be but christianity's never been able to do that they've never been able to document a real Jesus. It's always been the Jesus of convenience. It's always been the, you know, so you'll read, you'll read one passage in Paul or in John where it just seems like he's this benevolent benefactor. And then you'll read other passages where it just seems like, you know, he, he's the angel of death that's going to come judge everybody at the end. And it's hard for people to really, I might never forget one time I was in a, uh, a charismatic church and they asked me to lead a Bible study. And we were in the book of Matthew and we were in Matthew 26, 27, one of those and I'm, you know, I'm trying to teach the chapter and, and there was like this stone cold silence in the room. I was just like, like, what is going on? And then one of the women spoke up and she says, I've never read these chapters except for the first time I was a Christian. I'm like, well, that's fine. You know, but why? Because they scare me. And of course, Matthew 26, 27, that's the apocalyptic vision, right? Of the judgment, the separation of the sheep and the goats and all that. And I'm like, well, it's in the Bible. You know, I was, I, at that point, I was a biblicist. Like if it's in the Bible, we should study it. We should not, we should just adhere to it just because it's in there. Of course, that you know we can get into that, but that creates a whole host of issues. Mm -hmm. uh, but she was like, no, she said that it's too scary to me. I don't see Jesus that way. And I remember looking at her. I'm like, how can you not see Jesus in a way that the Bible presents him? Like this is Jesus talking. This is a red letter part of the Bible. Mm -hmm. Like, what do you mean you don't see Jesus that way? Well, I just don't. To me, Jesus is a lover of the children. I don't relate to the goats and sheep. I'm like, well, then you don't really want to know Jesus. And she was so offended when I said that. And I wouldn't have ever said that today. But back then to me, it was like, and this is, I guess, probably one of the areas where you and I have in common is I really wanted to get to the root of things. Yeah. You know, and so to fast forward a number of years, what really changed my journey big time was I was involved in this very cultic church. It was a Calvary Chapel church, very small church up in Vermont, led by a, a certifiable psychopath who should, never should have been in ministry, but somehow found himself in there. Of course, Calvary Chapel allows that. Um, 
we can get into that at some point if you want. But he decided, well, let me just say this. Let me just say this as a preference to what I'm going to tell you. Calvary Chapel has a leadership model that they call the Moses model. So the Moses model of Calvary Chapel basically is the idea. I'll present it their way. So I'll present it in a positive light from their perspective. So they view the story of Moses as being a story of given authority. So God gave Moses authority over the people. And God gave Moses the vision of what was going to happen and what they needed to do. So therefore, anyone who comes against the express will or decisions of Moses is considered antichrist, you know, according to the Calvary Chapel. So in the Calvary Chapel leadership model, the pastor is considered the one who has the vision from God and the call from God. And so the pastor, his job is to discern through the spirit who his followers are to be. Now you can see where this goes. Like if you just take a corporate example, this is called surrounding yourself with yes men. So in Calvary Chapel, you have this inbreeding that happens where if you want to ascend into roles of authority, you can do so as a layman. You don't need to have a formal education, but it's almost like the mafia. You'd better play ball with the leader. So they they have all these tests that they give you. They give you these poke tests and these loyalty tests, and there are all these tests along the way. You don't know this until you're in leadership as they're doing this. I was in leadership, so I knew that they were doing this. But I experienced it as a layperson where they test you to see if you're a quote-unquote sheep or a wolf. They have all these spiritualized and what terms. is a sheep and what is a wolf like what so are a sheep would be terms? someone i'll give you a very simple explanation the way that they explained it to me so i had a calvary chapel uh, pastor explain it this way to me so this is you know this is not me making this up so he said a sheep if you push a sheep and knock it over it'll cry and ask for it to be helped up if you push a wolf or stick a wolf with a stick it'll turn on you and bear its fangs and threaten you so in other words if they psychologically manipulate you and you react negatively to it, you're a wolf. If you psychologically, if they psychologically manipulate you and you take it without complaint, you're a sheep. That's how I interpret it. That's how it played out. Mm-hmm. But anyways, I'm in this church, this Calvary Chapel. This is the second Calvary Chapel I had been part of, by the way. So I'm skipping some years here. And the pastor of the church, a former black ops Marine, I should mention, decided that he wanted to raise up leaders and he had already told me that i was his chief elder but he said we need to have a bible study that's just for men where we're going to raise up leaders and so he said he was going to seek the lord about it and he came back about a month later and he said we're going to study the first five books of the bible we're going to start with genesis 1 1 we're going to go to the end of deuteronomy And then we're going to start over again. We're going to go right back through it all over again. Now, at that point, I had never heard of anything called the Parsha cycle or anything like that. All I knew was that these were books that I had read several times, found somewhat difficult reading in many parts, but I had never studied them, right? I had never gone like broken it down and really studied it. I just read it. You know, I read it as part of a a yearly Bible study. I mean, I've read the Bible dozens of times all the way through. 
Um, so we start this Bible study, and and I, I have a whole chapter about this in my book, but I call it someone else's story. So what happened to me is as we're going through these books of Moses, I'm coming across all these passages, and the thought keeps coming up in my mind. Like, I knew that the Jews did not accept the New Testament. So I knew that this was their core text. And I was struggling, even though there's many apologetic books within the Christian world that say otherwise, I was struggling to see Jesus in the text. Yeah. I was like, this is a story written to a people with clear boundaries and injunctions. And to them, he didn't exist in that text. What's that? And to them, he didn't exist in that text. No, correct. And not only did I not see Jesus in the text, I didn't see any point. Like, to me, what would have been logical, it would have been logical to me. Like, if God had this secret plan of bringing forth his son to redeem the nation and the world, then according to the principle of a fortiori there should be some type of hint in the torah where at some point moses should come out and say this is your covenant for now until the redeemer comes or this is what you are to live by until he who surpasses me arrives or something to that effect yeah. which would have made some consistent like cohesiveness with what the the apostles are trying to tell us in the new testament um like like uh so like the book dan brown right he pieces yep. all these things together to make this story i feel like if what christians believe the new testament is is what the torah was pointing to uh, it'd have to be more than illusions that i'm trying to piece together like you know in the dan brown books you know um that it doesn't make the case for what they believe. And that's, that's like, I think that's what you're getting to. That's a big issue there. Yeah. It's a huge issue because as you know, uh, Christianity through its many denominational expressions has an interpretive bias upon the old Testament. Yeah. And, you know, I have my own opinions about how that all came to be. I hold to the Marcion priority position meaning I believe the first gospel texts ever produced were by Marcion. I believe that the gospels that we have in the New Testament are of second century origin. Um, we can get into that in another conversation. I'd be interested in your thoughts on that. But the with that in play, with that being stated as a, as a point of um, transparency, I didn't always hold that position. You know, that, as I was going through the Messianic Jewish movement, I didn't hold that position. I, I was... I had a traditional scholarship view on the New Testament writings. But a lot of things didn't make sense even back then when I was in Calvary Chapel that I was like, okay, so like, for instance, I think I highlight this in my book, if I remember right. I was asked one time, I used to teach occasionally this group, my, the pastor would ask me to teach. So I remember I taught Deuteronomy 27. Pretty sure that's the chapter. And in Deuteronomy 27, that's the section of Deuteronomy where, where they're laying out if you do all these things, we'll be blessed. And if you do all these things, we'll be cursed. So like you have the, you have the, the cairn, the rock cairn on each mountain. And it's the mountain of blessing, the mountain of cursing. And it's all these conditions. You know, if you, if you don't obey me, you're going to have pestilence and disease and your, 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 your women will, will not give birth, whatever the, 
Um, but if you do obey me, that your crops will produce and blah, 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 blah. And, and I'm like, okay. So I'm, I'm studying it as a Christian. And I'm trying to understand, like, what am I supposed to see in this that is of the quality of redeeming grace? Like, where is Paul's Galatians in Deuteronomy 27? Like, Paul likes to throw around the Torah, but he always misquotes it. And he always takes it and inverts it out of its context. So, like his whole Paul's whole uh, metaphor in Galatians of the of the servant of the bond slave and the servant of the freeborn, it sounds wonderful. It's wonderful philosophy. It's not Judaism. It doesn't have anything to do with Jewish belief. Mm. It's, it's actually blasphemy to Jewish belief. You're basically saying that the children of the covenant covenant are of no value. Only the children that are free from the covenant are of value. Like, like, what are you really saying? And so, like, I started having these questions, and it was really bothering me because we spent seven years as a men's group studying the Torah. Now, granted, from a Christian perspective, I didn't have any Jewish commentaries back then. But what happened was, is, is immediately, I ended up having a falling out with that pastor. And I moved my family out of the area. Uh, about three hours north to Burlington, Vermont. And at that point, um, I ended up running into this guy. I was part of a business group, and the guy that was leading the business group was getting some kind of a civic award, and he invited me to go, and I couldn't afford a ticket, so he said, oh, just come and sit at the head table with my family. So I'm like, all right. So I show up at this awards banquet, and he's the featured speaker, and I'm sitting at the head table near the front, and there's this guy that's like in his 60s and his wife is there and and we're chit-chatting, having a beer. And all of a sudden he finds out, you know, he asked me if I'm a Christian. And I'm like, yeah. He goes, what kind of Christian are you? And I'm like, what kind of a question is that? And his wife is like, shut up, shut up. You know, I guess he did this a lot, you know. And he's like, what kind of Christian are you? I'm like, I don't know what you mean. I said, I'm a Jesus follower. He says, that's not what I mean. He gets all frustrated. He's like... He says, what denomination are you? I'm like, I consider myself uh, non-denominational, right? And he gets all frustrated. And he's like, he's like, what do you think of Paul? I'm like, I don't know. What am I supposed to think of Paul? And he goes, Paul wasn't a Christian. And I just I like, was like, what? And I'm like, thinking to myself, well, actually, logically, that makes sense because Christianity as a religion didn't really exist yet when he was supposedly writing. Yeah. And he's like, exactly. Paul was a Jew. That's what he says. And I'm like, okay. I'm like, so where are you going with this? He says, so if Paul was a Jew, don't you think we should try to understand what the Jews think? And I'm like, yeah, I said, that sounds interesting. I'd, I'd be willing to explore that. I said, you know, do you have any links you can give me or anything? And he says, he says, write this down. So he gives me a piece of paper. And he says, write down F-F-O-Z. I went, Fozzie Bear? Like, what are you talking about? He goes, no. He says, it's an organization. It stands for First Fruits of Zion. I'm like, okay. He says, I'll send you a free magazine. You can check it out. <clears throat> I'm like, all right. So I went home. I sent away for the free magazine. I got this magazine in the mail. And the issue was interesting because we had been very frustrated. We had been very traumatized 
by our experience in Southern Vermont with this Calvary Chapel Church. It was like a really bad experience for my family. It was very negative. It hurt our family. It, it was very deeply divisive. And um, we were just looking for something that made sense of the puzzle, so to speak, right? So this magazine comes in. And I and at, by the way, I, at that time, we were going to some kind of charismatic church that was focused on music. And it was really kind of shallow to us. It wasn't really meeting our, our thing. And so we sent away for this magazine. And this magazine had a feature article talking about the kingdom of God is on earth. And that was like a mind-blowing concept to me. Even though it was right from scripture, I was like, really like, I was taught the rapture. Like for the last 20 years, all anybody talks about is the rapture, the rapture, the rapture, the rapture. And all of a sudden, these people are sitting here saying that, no, the earliest believers taught the kingdom being realized on earth as it is in heaven. I'm like, well, that's exactly what it says in Matthew. Like that, remember, Matthew was the first book that I really took in. It was always my favorite book. Mm. And so I was like, and Matthew is a very Jewish-oriented type gospel. Although I, I still think it's very anti-Semitic, but that's another conversation. But at any rate, um, so I was like, well, this is intriguing. So I, I figured I'll give it to my wife because she's got the litmus test, right? She'll, 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 she'll tell me if she has a check about it. That was a big thing in the evangelical world. You have a check about this. There's a spirit checking you about this, right? So I wanted to know if my wife had a check about it. So she read the magazine and she was like, yeah, looks good. So that began our journey into the Messianic Jewish world. We slowly started matriculating towards that world. Um, at that time, I know how much time you got. You're probably getting short on time here. Oh, I got 30 minutes. You're good. Oh, you got 30 minutes. Okay. So my son-in-law, Brian, who was a brilliant, brilliant kid, um, brilliant with languages, he's just really smart. He he decided that this was an intriguing path because he was always disenchanted with the Calvary Chapel thing. I had trained him as a worship leader, and he just thought the whole Calvary thing was a complete joke. And so he was looking for something real. He was like actually thinking of leaving the faith if he didn't find something more genuine. And so we came across this Messianic Jewish thing, and, and his imagination just got, I mean, he just got enlivened by it. He got really into language learning. He started learning Hebrew. He started learning Greek. Today, my son-in-law can teach Greek classes. He's fluent in Greek. He's fluent in Hebrew. He's semi-fluent in German and Spanish. He just, he's a language guy, and, um, and he's really scholarly. And so we started studying together, and... Um, this guy that I met at this awards banquet had told me that he was going to go to a banquet for his daughter that was in a ballet. And he had this old commentary from FFOZ that he would give to me for free if I wanted it. So I went to the ballet. He gives me this big giant three ring binder and it's uh the Torah club or something like that. Huh? The Torah club binders. Torah club. It was the original Torah club when, when FFOZ was still one law. When they, they had this position where there was one law for Jew and Gentile and all should follow it. That was their position in their early days. They don't have that position today. They follow more of a Chabad. Chabad is kind of their, their inspiration today, uh, which is another one of their problems. Um, but at any rate, um, I don't have a high view of Chabad. Uh, but the so, anyways, so, they, the... so they try to elevate Jesus like they the Menachem... Snearson, whatever the Chabad Rebbe or whatever. Yeah, it, it's it's very messianic. Yeah, 
Um, Chabad is not, you'll never, you never have a Chabadnik admit this, but Chabad is not even considered to be real Judaism by most mainstream Orthodox Jews. They tolerate them because you're ubiquitous, but they consider them to be a mystical cult. Yeah, they, they, they basically, they'll never admit it, but they hold Schneerson kind of in the same esteem as Jesus. Yeah. Um, they'll, that's a very uncomfortable thing for them to admit. They won't say but it, but yeah. They won't say it because it violates Jewish sensibilities, but it's it's the absolute fact. And it's one of the reasons, by the way, that so many messianics are attracted to Chabad is because uh, Chabad has a very messianic expression that feels like evangelical Christianity. So a lot of people that get educated on Jewish sources within the messianic world end up going to a Chabad shul for education, not well, realizing because they're a lot open to like people coming in too. Though they're a lot more open. Oh, absolutely. To, to people coming in. I, I never went to Chabad for those reasons. I went more because it was welcoming and I had friends that were. But Chabad was kind of one of my early education points into uh, Judaism. Same here. Yeah, same um, here. Absolutely. It was between that and the conservative movement, like I was yep. reading in your book. Chabad and the conservative were my two. Uh, I liked Chabad. I probably dab in like Chabad a little bit, but for the most part, the conservative movement and sensibility is always what spoke to me. Yeah, I think you and I are of a like mind. That's what I found myself falling into as well, as I felt a lot more. I found that the well, and we're kind of diverting here a little bit, but that's fine. We can do that. We're going to have conversations. So I found that the um, the politics within the Jewish world was a real turnoff to me. Uh, when I first converted to Judaism, I had really high hopes that it was a really positive step for my family. And then what I found was, is that the people who would welcome us weren't interested in practicing. And the people who wouldn't welcome us would be. But there was so much animosity between the orthodox community and the conservative and reform movements that you you would not be well like for instance as an example i tried i tried to get myself involved in a local because it was referred to me i used to teach i used to teach for a couple of years for a noahide organization i used to try to teach gentiles about you know jewish stuff because i was kind of in between both worlds and um and it was a lot of fun for a while. I did a lot of research, had some fun. But uh, at one point, one of the rabbis that taught on the platform, he recommended me to attach myself to the Atlanta Kollel through Beth Jacob, which was a uh, one of it's the oldest Orthodox uh, synagogue in Atlanta. And so I'm like, oh, great. So I called I called the Kollel and I, I inquired about their study group. And they're like, oh, yeah, that's great. No problem. I'm going to connect you to Rabbi such and such. You know, he's over in Dunwoody and and his son is also a rabbi there and they would love to talk with you. And I'm sure they'd love to help you. And I'm like, great. I was all encouraged. And and so I was this is like after I kind of blew my brains out in the conservative world. And I was just like, I just wanted to find a place where I could study. You know, I wanted to study Talmud. I wanted to study sources. And and I ha I own the Talmud. You probably can't see it because of the blurring of my camera, but I got the Talmud behind me. I, I, I still read it. I mean, I studied it for years. Um, I've got the entire collection of Rabbi Nachman of Breslov. I've got all of his Lakuti Maharan. I've got I've got the full set of Rashi and the Torah. I mean, I've got all these resources here and I've been studying all this stuff. And so I arranged for a Zoom meeting with the rabbi's son. And I had this really positive Zoom meeting with him. And he's, he, you know, he sees the Talmud behind me, which is why I mentioned it. He's like, oh, I can see you're serious about study. You even own your own Talmud. I'm like, yeah, I, I really want to learn. I said, I wasn't raised in it. I want to learn. I want someone 
to kind of pull me under their wing and actually teach me. I said, I, I want to learn the tradition. And I said, I'd love to be able to bring my wife, you know, and 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 be able to come on Shabbat and be able to you know celebrate with, with your community. And so he said, well, I'm going to arrange, I'll talk to my dad. You know, he was the senior rabbi and he says, I'll arrange a time for you to talk with him. I'm sure, I'm sure he'll be eager to talk with you. And so then I got an email back like the next day that the guy sends me. He says, oh, my, fa my father is very eager to talk with you. I've told him your story. He finds it very intriguing. And I'm like, oh, hope. So my wife is all of a sudden cheered up because we feel like we don't have a home. And so I get in, I get in a, a phone call with this guy. It wasn't a Zoom meeting this time. I got in a phone call with the senior rabbi. And, and he asked me, so what's your situation? I said, well, my wife and I were founding members of a Chabad shul. But I said, Chabad would never convert us because it's just, you know, our family is in a place where they just would never do it. So I said, I was encouraged to go to the conservative movement. The conser I had two conservative rabbis tell me that I was a great candidate for conversion, that I should go there. So I went to a conservative shul. And they converted me within eight months, my wife and I. And he says, so what about your children? Do you have children living at home? I said, yeah, I have a, at that point, I said, I have a 14-year-old and a 19-year-old. And he says, are they, did they convert with you? I said, no, they're not interested. He said, well, I'm sorry, I can't help you. I'm like, I just want to join the Kalel. Like, what are you talking about? And he says, you're not Jewish. I'm like, what? He said, well, you're not Jewish. You have to convert to Judaism. I said, I did. He says, no, you didn't. I said, okay. I don't want to argue with you because I respect your position. I said, but I've been studying with a Breslov rabbi for the last six years who is actually a Posek in several Jewish areas of, of halakhic law. He was trained in Israel by the head Sephardic rabbi in Israel. And he told me the parameters of halakhic law for conversion, mm -hmm. and I fulfilled all of them. But you're telling me I'm not Jewish. And he says, well, you know, that's the problem with the conservatives, is they want to be Jewish, but they don't want to follow the law. I'm like, excuse me, I just told you that I fulfilled everything in halakhic law for conversion i said all of my overseeing rabbis were all shomer shabbat and all following kashrut and i said that qualifies them as being able to declare us jewish he says now sorry it doesn't work that way not with the rca I'm like ah so i said okay so fine so i'm not jewish in your eyes can we come to the community and learn? He says, no, that will never work. I'm like, why? He says, well, first of all, you can't drive on Shabbat. You'd have to buy a home here in Dunwoody. Good luck with that, like $500,000 average. And he said, you have to buy a home here in Dunwoody. And he says, and furthermore, once they found out that you can you converted through conservative, they would never talk to you. I'm just telling you the facts the ground game. I'm like, well, that's very honest of you. I do appreciate that. I said, that saves us a lot of heartache. I said, okay, fine. So it's not going to work for my wife and I to join your community. He says, no, no. He says, now 
if you want to divorce your wife, then I can convert you. I'm like, well, that's a great option to leave your family and then I can join this religion that's supposed to bring me health, wholeness, and prosperity. Great. No, I didn't say that to him, but I thought that. Mm -hmm. I'm like, well, okay. And he says, uh, I said, well, let me ask you a different question. I understand you've shut the door on my family joining your community. What about me studying with you guys at the Kalel? It's just men. Mm -hmm. He says, no, no, I, that's only for Jews. I'm like, I said, okay, now I'm getting irritated. I said, if I had called you and said that I was a Jew who was looking to come back to observance, and I live in Buford, away from the community, could I drive for midweek and Sunday Talmud and Bible study to join your Kalel so that I could learn? You would have enthusiastically embraced me, wouldn't have you? He says, absolutely. I said, I'm glad you admit that. Because I was honest with you. Now you're shutting the door. I said, this is the problem. This is a problem that you are going to have to fix among yourselves in the Jewish world. I said, this is why we have a schism. I said, I'm sorry, but I can't accept your reasoning on this, although I do understand it from your perspective. I said, but thank you. I thanked him profusely for taking the time to be honest with me. He didn't pull any punches. I do give him a lot of credit for that. He told me the straight scoop of what the lay of the land was. He didn't, he didn't, you know, he didn't flower it up. Um, it wasn't a seeker friendly conversation. So, but when I find what's going on, I just, and then when I saw what happened during COVID, um, I, I wouldn't even get into that right now, but I was so floored and disappointed at the Jewish response to COVID. Uh, I just, I couldn't even, I had, I got kicked out of two yeshivas because I didn't want to get vaccinated. I, I just was like, and it was an online yeshiva. I was just, uh, I just, I couldn't deal with it anymore. So I, I finally realized, you know, this is not my home, but, but that was my journey. I mean, I kind of, I skipped a lot of stuff there when I jumped into that last thing I just got into, but there's, you know, there's a lot of problems in the Jewish world and there's a lot of problems in the Christian world. But the real problem is, what are we really believing in? Like, what is our foundation of belief, really? Like, what are we actually about? And I think that's where people usually enter into this conversation, is they're trying to figure out who they are, what they believe, and what they think is true, you know? Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Um, I did have some questions there. Uh, to, to respond to a few po points along the way, um, I do believe that Marcion had a lot to do with the influence into the, the epistles of Paul and then the writing of the gospels and stuff like that. The, you made that point. Um, I don't know. You made a comment about whether Paul was a Christian or not, not, you know, in some ways I'd argue he was the first Christian, uh, or at least the, the one we have in the new Testament is the one that was used to invent Christianity, whether that was written by Paul or, uh, or Marcion or because Marcion did his own gospel. He, but even though he was treated as a heretic, uh, a lot of his beliefs became foundational to the, the Christian message that became Catholicism. 
which is foundational to everything that's come out of Catholicism. So, yeah. um, and, and a lot of, a lot of, uh, people who try to refute the ideas when you, when you talk about this, they're like, well, Marcion was, was seen as a heretic. He was rejected. Okay. But the, the, what would we call primary Paul, the first seven letters in, and the three that are most likely, most scholars think were probably written by Paul, but you have the seven that for sure. And then the three additional, and then you have the three that are pseudepigrapha. Um, but the 10 that are Marcion had are the ones that are most commonly accepted. And then the seven that we call primary Paul. Um, but he had his own versions of all those. Um, and, and I feel like his, he really is the one that started the, like the huge focus on supersessionism, doing away with the Torah and just like flipping that thing on its head that became a primary message to what became Christianity. Um, so you kind of, you touched on that and I was like, yeah, Marcion is a, is a big thing there in, like the whole twisting of things and, and changing the direction of where most, most people don't know. It sounds like you do, but most people don't know that the very first gospel ever put in print and circulation was Marcion's gospel of the Lord around the 135 AD mark. So like you have this traditional scholarship that dates, you know, Mark at like 70 AD and there I mean, is an the argument that can be made. So many from, but we don't have a we don't have a manuscript from them. The, 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 right. You know, it's it was originally in an oral form or something back then. But right. So that exactly that's that's the argument. So like a traditional scholar, like, like if I if I were to consult, say, um, Dennis McDonald, Ph.D., he he is of a Mark and priority view, and yes. he'll make a very compelling argument about Mark and priority. Um, I hold the view that Mark was composed primarily from the writings of Paul. Mark is very Marcionite. Yeah. And it's, and so when, when people understand it, and most Christians don't know this, but like the early, I, I interviewed a scholar, uh, by the name of Jack Bull, and he's a student of, um, uh, Marcus Vincent in Germany. Uh, I think he's in Germany. And Marcus Vincent is the uh, the main proponent of the Marcion priority theory. I've, I've listened to several arguments about this, and he's pretty well convinced me that. Um, but anyways, we neither here nor there. The, the idea that um, people don't realize that Paul is unrecognized by the earliest church fathers. He's not even mentioned by them. Like he's, it's almost like he's unknown. And it's, it's funny to me because like you mentioned the works of Robert Eisenman, James Tabor and others. Uh, Robert Eisenman, his book, James, the brother of Jesus was an eye opening read for me. That was a yeah. phenomenal read for me. It was a little bit tedious, mm -hmm. but I thought he made some tremendous observations in that work. Um, and, you know, he talks a lot about the Clementine recognitions and about, um, you know, so basically Eisenman has the position that the, the real Jesus is actually James and that Paul was an opponent of his. Mm -hmm. And so Paul ends up as a renegade going against the early Christians and starting his own movement and his movement becomes ascendant and ends up becoming the doctrinal core of the, of the later church that is now separated from the original. Um, James Tabor is interesting to me because 
I've interviewed James a number of times. Uh, he's been very generous with his time with me, and I find him to be a, a very, very careful and thorough scholar. Mm -hmm. uh, my my thing with James is I'm really into his work on Paul. I'm not so much on board with him on the Jesus dynasty stuff. Uh, I, I've never brought that up to him. I've never interviewed him on those subjects. I find that his work... Paul and Jesus is one of the best works on Paul I've ever read. Mm -hmm. uh, and the reason I like it so much is because he highlights the fact that if you, if you accept the presumption that Paul's writings came before the gospels, then you have to completely reevaluate the way you read Paul, because most people read Paul in light of the gospels. Yeah. And that's a major interpretive bias that Christians have that blinds them to a lot of things that Paul actually says. Yeah. Right. And that I thought was a great contribution, but I'll tell you the best book I've ever read on Paul is Robert Price. He wrote a book called the amazing colossal apostle. It was a slam dunk. What, what a phenomenal piece of research that was. I, it, it, it just it it solves so many riddles for me. I can't even begin to explain to you. It just I I've become convinced uh, at this point in my you know in my development of thought that I agree with Price that I hold to the uh, I agree to the Dutch high critical method of of uh, interpretation, and I I've come to the place where I agree with Price that none of the letters of Paul are fully authentic. That there are parts of different letters that are original, that could be Paul. But like, for instance, the first Corinthians letter, Price makes a very compelling argument that first Corinthians was, was used as a doctrinal hammer to try to get churches in line during the early parts of the Roman church. Um, and it's it's clear that it has many redactors. Yeah, There's a lot of stitching of in it. Yeah, and I mean, Brad Ehrman talks about this. You have all these all these stitch points in the New Testament texts, where it like especially in Paul, where it looks like he's concluding a thought, and then he starts a whole new argument, and then goes back like like what is going on here? Like like as as Price points out in his book, these aren't epistles. These are not letters. Like if you wrote a letter in the ancient world, it was, you know, it was a couple of paragraphs and then you sent it off. These are sermons. Mm -hmm. Somebody sat down and they worked this thing. And, it, and in Price's opinion, it was more than one person. It was many people over a long period of time that kept adding to, subtracting and stitching up Paul to conform him because Paul, of course, Paul's like Tom Brady, right? Tom Brady, the greatest quarterback of all time. If Tom Brady does it or says it, then that must be credible. So I think the church used Paul as like a Tom Brady. Like, we're going to put Paul's name on this because then people will pay attention to it. I mean, we already know. I mean, even mainstream scholars admit that First and Second Peter are probably forgeries. Most of them admit that First and Second Peter, I mean, First and Second Timothy are later church documents that have nothing to do with the first century of Christianity. So like you said accurately, you've got this core Paul that you're really dealing with. And that's one of the things I appreciate about Tabor is Tabor really breaks it down to that core element. Like, what are we really dealing with in the earliest part of this testimony, you know?
Um, yeah, so I would say kind of very developmental in like my historical Jesus reconstruction of Paul in the New Testament. Uh, definitely Robert Eisenman, James Tabor, you know, Bart Ehrman, you know, very enlightening on my journey and, and formative in. Um, Gezefer Mesh, of course, uh, you know, on his his views of, you know, Jesus the Jew. And then um, uh, Haim Maccabees. Yeah, uh, I have that book. That's a good book. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, when I was really in my deconstruct, figure out what this thing is phase, you know, I was pouring through all those guys' book. I have to say, Haim Maccabees, like, you know, really That's hit a good it on book. the head. Um, and I and I know you kind of touched on it in your um you know, I've had James Valiant on before. Uh you kind of touched on James Valiant and, and Joseph Atwill. Um, so you kind of mentioned uh Robert Eisenman's theory, a little bit of, you know, James DeBoer. Um, you know, that there is evidence from the church fathers that the the Nazarenes and the Ebionites were of the Essene uh, branch of Judaism. There's re references that, that say as much. Um, so, I mean, there's definitely evidence that it was influenced by. I don't know if I'd go as far as Eisenman and, and say that James is the teacher of righteousness or that Jesus was or John. I mean, it's a similar community or it's a branch of. Uh, I haven't crossed that bridge to say that the one and the same. I haven't got that far, but they're very close. Um, but if you look at the messianism, and you, you do touch on this in your book, the the what the messianic Jewish uh, of the first century is was a revolutionaries fighting against Rome right. to establish King Mashiach, uh, which is nothing right. because, and this is where I'm coming to, like the, you know, James Valiant and Atwills, is it. This Christianity that was invented is on the nose. It's upside down. It's the opposite of what you would think an Essene Messianic Jewish expression would have been. Um, you know, so kind of like, what are your thoughts on that Roman influence? Was it simply the Hellenization of the culture that Paul was in? Was it simply uh, influences of Stoicism or the redaction that came from Marcion and others within Rome uh, wasn't an intentional plot to create a religion that's more easy to control the masses. How much time we got? Uh, five minutes. I could push it. Okay. To I I'll, I'll, try to, I'll try my best to give a quick synopsis of my view on this, because I do have a very unique view on all this. I have interviewed James Valiant about six or seven times. Uh -huh. I've interviewed uh, Robert Price a bunch of times. I haven't had a chance to interview uh, Joseph Atwell, although I have read his book and, and listened and watched his documentary. Um, I think it's a complicated problem. I think the people who want to dismiss Roman provenance are reductionist in their argument. The most common arguments that I hear against Roman provenance is that, well, we know that Christians were being persecuted under Nero, so how could it be? You know, blah 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 blah. And then the second most common objection is that, <clears throat> well, the well the Christians were so disorganized and so so fighting with each other in the early parts of the of the movement. How could it possibly be a state-run institution? Um, I think those arguments miss the point of the research. Uh, I do believe in Roman providence, but not the way it's been presented by any of the authors of the theory. 
I have a much different view on Roman provenance. So this is my view. My personal view is that the original Christians were not the zealous Jews that were trying to overthrow Rome. Those were Jewish zealots that were zealous for Judaism. But there was a movement that had started in Alexandria under Philo in his writings, who was a student of Plato and of Egyptology. There was a mystical movement that was based on Gnosis or Gnosticism that is very parallel to much of the Jewish Gnosticism that we find alluded to in Talmudic references uh, and then going forward into the uh, centuries going forward, uh, especially around the time uh, Jewish mysticism really explodes around the 10th, 11th century, around the time of, of the Rambam and around the time of, of, uh, of the overthrow of Constantinople, uh, where when is the Islamic nations overthrew the Christian nations in Turkey, and you have a lot of Jews are intermingling with uh, with Islam, uh, as uh, Maimonides uh, Rambam was surrounded by Islamic scholars. He was that was his chief uh, colleagues. Um, so, uh, anyways, backwards. Uh, Philo, in his writings, wrote about a Jesus. He actually named him Jesus who would be slaughtered in space by the devil and his demons, and through which he would propitiate the salvation of the world. So Philo wrote this concept long before the Gospels were ever written. I personally believe that Paul, whoever Paul was, if he ever actually existed, which I have my doubts, uh, but if there was a real Paul, or if he's not just a, a nomenclature of church authorities, uh, I believe Paul would have been a mystic, Hellenized renegade. If he was a real person, probably was rejected. There's legends that that he tried to become a real Jew, but because he came from Tarsus and was not a Jewish community, that he was considered to be a bastard child, was rejected from, from the yeshiva. And he reacted by inventing these visions and starting this movement that was basically a of now the clementine recognitions would support this right the clementine recognitions uh eisenman points this out at least portray paul as being an enemy of james even trying to kill him at one point right so we have this mystery of who paul is uh Robert Price believes that that the character of Simon, Simon Magus in the Gospels actually is alluding to Paul, mm -hmm. the real Paul. That's an interesting theory. Uh, but what I would say regarding Roman provenance is that we can't deny that the Roman government, when they would come into a culture to take it over, and I, I feel like James Valiant and Rowan, Warren Fay did a much better job than, than uh, Atwell of pointing this out, is that the, the practice of Rome was to go into a culture and to try to assimilate them into a broader spectrum of, of, uh, of understanding of the world so that they could be part of their economy. They were economically driven. So they would be happy to, to accommodate the gods and the worship and the religion of the culture provided they would also accommodate the religion the plurality of the roman culture the roman the roman state was a very plur pluralistic religious culture right 
But in the midst of that, which can easily be lost, is that Rome itself was supposedly founded by Romulus, who was a dying and rising savior god. So the Roman state itself was founded upon men who were considered to have become divine. And when Vespasian conquered Jerusalem after Nero died, Vespasian was a commoner who has his claim to fame as just military conquests. And he didn't have a noble birth. So it was very important for someone like Vespasian to be able to convince the Senate and the population that he was the choice of the gods. And so he needed to be divinized. And so there was an effort made after he died by his son to try to create uh, his father Vespasian to be able to, I don't know the word for it, but to become uh, divinized. Uh, and they used apotheosis. his conquering... Of, huh? Apotheosis. Yeah, yeah, thank you. That was the word I couldn't think of. And they used his conquering of Jerusalem as, as the evidence to support the reason. So I do see a clear... And of course, Valiant also uh, portrays very clear archaeological evidence on the coins and on many of the inscriptions and some of the uh, monuments and, and artifacts. It's very clear that the fish and anchor symbol was being used by the early Vespasian dynasty as a symbol of their rule, which, of course, we know that that was used later by Christians as their symbol. So there's a there's an interesting connection there between the iconography of 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 the Vespasian uh, rule, uh, the Flavians, and and the Christian symbolism, and it is very curious if people are going to claim that Christians were being persecuted back then in that period of Rome, why would why would Roman emperors print coins that have Christian symbolism on them if Christianity is supposedly a persecuted group? So that I think it it at least shows some incredulity upon the common narrative that that christians were persecuted in rome back in the 50s and 60s and 70s uh that being said uh i do think that the roman provenance theory breaks down once you get past vespasian's son and you get to domitian by the time of domitian um Domitian wanted nothing to do with that. He wanted a, his own thing, and he went back to paganism. Uh, and it, it, when you get, by, by the time you get to Pliny the Younger, it looks like a movement. That, you know, if, if there was an association with Christianity and Vespasian, it seems like by the time of Pliny the Younger, that has dissipated to a very small fraction of the population to the point that Pliny doesn't even know who these people are. Like, like, what's a Christian? What am I supposed to do with them? So I think that's where I think the theory gets questioned easily. But I think what I would say as a final comment is that we have to recognize that Rome, when we consider the concept of censorship, censorship is a Roman term. It comes from the term censor, which was a job description in the Roman Empire. Rome diligently stamped out any literature or propaganda that they felt was contrary to their national interests. And we've lost many, many, many texts from that period as a result of that process. Yeah. The fact that what we have remains, this is my theory on Roman providence, is Roman providence comes into play on our current Christian environment 
by the censorship that they imposed over literature. And the New Testament that we have currently was the result of the violent expulsion of dissidents within the within the empire, the political coercion of those to try to make them conform under penalty of death, and the fact that this is the story that they wanted propagated. Yeah. So Who had the in money that and light, resources to make that many copies of you know ancient manuscripts, it had to be. Yeah, exactly, and and people funded. don't also understand. There's a scholar recently, and I forget her name. Uh, forgive me uh i'm trying to think of it uh, i'll think of it later but she did a whole bunch of scholarship uh, recently that shows that the only way the new testament could have been written was by the hands of wealthy people because back and people don't realize like today we can self-publish a book right back then you didn't publish or psych or circulate literature unless you had money or connection to money because it was an expensive proposition i'm of the opinion and i'll just say this as a final remark that the only Christian writings that we have in the first century are Josephus. And I don't consider him a Christian. I'm just saying that Josephus, I think, is the only text written before 100 AD that we can even rely upon as having been written during that time period. And I think it's very telling that during the first few centuries of the church, they would always attach the writings of Josephus yeah. to the New Testament for credibility. Yeah. That was the only you know, thing they had to hang their hat on. I think that I think so. I think so. Yeah. So we're, we're right. dealing with a later. The New Testament is a later construction. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, we can definitely get into that more. Um, I'm going to have to bring it down to an end here. But uh, definitely appreciate you uh, sharing the story. And, um, uh, you know, we'll have to do this again sometime. Yeah, uh, I enjoyed it. Got some um, good stuff here. And uh interesting points of intersection yeah i'm interested uh, in what you have to say too it looks like you've done a lot of good research yeah uh and some of the stuff you talked about today i actually have posts i've already written that are going to be posting on uh the apostle paul and uh, it uh connections to you know hellenistic mysticism kind of stuff down that way and there's like three other things that i have it's just waiting to be uh published but uh but yeah, I'm looking forward so, to reading your blog. It's very high quality. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, yeah, I'm impressed. I'm going to have to get going here. Uh, any yep. last words? No, I just appreciate you having me on. I, I had my own YouTube YouTube channel active for quite a while, and I was having a lot of fun interviewing other people. And this has been kind of a treat for me to be able to have somebody come, have me come on and ask me what I think. <laughs> so I've enjoyed this opportunity. So anytime you want to do it again, I, I'd be more than happy to arrange it. Uh, yeah, we definitely have a, a bunch of uh, topics and threads we can pull, uh, you know, experience in ministry and church, Messianic Judaism, converting to Absolutely. Judaism. There's a lot there. And then we get into like uh, deconstructing, you know, the mythical Jesus and looking at what there is for the historical Jesus. And again, seems like there's some intersectionality, intersectionality on like ideas and concepts there. So interesting. Uh, glad to make the connection and be able to interview. Yeah, same here. This episode, and uh, yeah, we'll be doing this again in the future. Uh, Just make sure you send me a link to it after it uploads. I will. I will once it posts. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. All right, man. Appreciate it. Have a good. Have one. a great night.